Hello and welcome to the Immigration Roundup podcast. This is Colin Yeo speaking. I'm joined by Sonia Lennigan and we're covering the updates on free movement from January 2023. We've got three sort of grouped main topics that we're planning on going over today. Um, we're going to cover several things about government policy, which is we're kind of grouping together perhaps unwisely for the future as examples of the government being horrible. And now, obviously, the problem with that taxonomy is that there's not much that we cover on this website that doesn't fall into it. Um, but we've, we've got some fairly specific examples we want to go over this month. And um, we've got a few blog posts um, dealing with various nationality issues, including the very controversial case of Rurig, if that's the way that it is pronounced. And then we've got a few technical but quite important things to finish off with um, to do with um, basically legal practice. So sort of fairly fairly squarely aimed at lawyers. Right, before we get started properly, Sonia, do you want to just quickly say hello? Hi, everyone. Great. So um, if you want to claim CPD, that's Continuing Professional Development, for listening to the podcast, then you sign up as a member at Free Movement, and we have a monthly quiz that goes with this podcast that you can help to show your regulator um, that you are keeping yourself firmly up to date. Right. Now, Sonia, you are actually going to lead on this um, government policy issue to start with. Can you, do you want to kick off with that? Um, yeah, so we started by looking at an article written by Sheila Reynolds from Freedom from Torture, one of my favourite people. Um, it was called The Misguided Allure of Deterrence Policy, and that was basically based on a new report from Freedom of Torch- Fre- Freedom from Torture, which is called Fleeing a Burning House. And essentially, it just says what you and I and probably most people listening to this already know, which is that, um, you know, that the... the all of the policies and the, the hardships that the government are trying to put are putting on to people who are seeking asylum in the UK, none of that is going to be a deterrent because what they are fleeing, the, the torture and the unimaginable horrors and further trauma that they experience on their journey, that is what pushes them forward. They were there are a diversity of reasons for why people will come to the UK instead of stopping somewhere along the way. That could be family. It could be the fact that they speak English. Um, it, you know, this is something that we have discussed over and over again, and I'm sure we will again. Um, people just don't know the intricacies of the UK asylum system. They don't know what Group 1 or Group 2 refugee status is. They don't know how awful asylum accommodation is. and actually you know, what they are leaving behind is worse. So, you know, as much as the government is making people's lives miserable, that is really all they will achieve. It will not deter people from coming here. It will just uh, make it more difficult for them to integrate and to move on with their lives and to feel secure and safe, which is what we should be providing them with. Yeah, I saw a really interesting working paper uh, a few days ago from somebody, I think it was based on a Swiss study, looking at the long term impacts of these kind of policies on refugees, because, um, you know, if, if you if you put a, a sort of policymaker hat on, which is quite an unpleasant thing to, 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 to imagine for oneself, but, um, you know, it's one thing to be really horrible to people if it's fairly short term, and then you're going to remove them at the end of it. It's like not your problem. And that's a really brutal way of thinking. But that's, that's how policymakers think. But if, if they're actually going to be here for a long time, and then they're going to settle, and they're going to be here as permanent part of society, then treating them really horribly is just a really bad idea. And this this working paper was all about the the impact of even 
short-term um, bans from the the labor market and so on, and how basically refugees never recover from those kinds of um, policy impacts, and it, it affects them and their children for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, you're removed from society from you know having a functioning life for years and how do you recover from that you know especially when you've been through such a traumatic situation it's obviously just piling hardship on top of hardship and for no actual benefit to anyone my my sort of my theory for why politicians do so it's partly just sort of sends political signals and so on it's partly because it's something that they can they can control like they it kind of there's a sort of common sense element to it and of course the idea of common sense is really dangerous because what's common sense isn't necessarily true um but they they feel like well if you do treat people horribly then it must have some sort of impact somehow they'll find out about it somehow it'll put some people off um and it's really difficult to convince people who think like that that it's just not true because they start pointing to like their imagined counterfactual. Oh well, more even more people would have come here if we hadn't done these things previously, and so on. Um, but you know, there's there's just no research at all, no evidence to to support those kinds of policies. Um, or at least the deterrent effect of those policies. What there is lots of evidence on is the the, the awful impact that it has on people's on people's lives. Right, Sonia, we were going to talk about some examples of that, weren't we? So I, I don't think we need to run through these terribly quickly but for example i this is the month where we we learned that the um adults at risk and immigration detention annual report was going to be scrapped um because it was being too effective in highlighting problems with the detention of vulnerable adults what did you make of that one yeah so i think this was commissioned by sajid javid in 2018 i think um and this is the third one that's just been published um the current ICIBI was looking specifically at Rule 35 reports in particular in this one. Um, The report was published. Unsurprisingly to anyone who works with people who are detained, Rule 35s, the process is an absolute mess. There were other um, problems that were picked up. Assessment of people's English skills was not always sufficient. Uh, There were delays in induction, um, I think that was because of staffing difficulties and yeah, just, you know, it's the usual list of issues. Um, and I think the Home Secretary accepted a couple of the recommendations and partially accepted some other ones. But then also, I'm not sure if this was announced anywhere apart from in The Guardian, where I think it was David Neal and Stephen Shaw who wrote about the fact that this um, commission had been discontinued. However. David Neal has been clear, I think, that he and the ICIBI intend to keep inspecting immigration detention. So, you know, what the Home Office hopes to achieve by this uh, is beyond me, as are many of their decisions. However, you know, those inspections by the ICIBI will continue and HMIP as well, obviously. I think they are looking at Manston around about now and they will obviously keep inspecting detention and they don't have the same restrictions as the ICIBI do on their ability to report. So, yeah, I mean, what actual impact this will make remains to be seen. It's just an indication from the Home Office of their opinion of these reports. And, you know, we kind of already 
know that because of the way they sit on them for months. And, you know, often they will accept or partially accept recommendations and then do absolutely nothing to follow yeah. up on it. And to say, just to make clear, David Neal is the Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration. He's an ex submarine commander, I think, ex military man of, of some sort. And um, I think. He didn't. He didn't stand out as an obvious person when he was appointed to be highly critical of the government, should we say? But um, that that has not turned out to be the case. He has been really quite critical. I said at the outset, I wonder how long it will take to be for him to be radicalised. Because if you are dealing with that level of incompetence, how can you react in any other way? I don't. You know, I really don't think it matters how sort of home office friendly and I'm certainly not saying that that's my that was my view of him but it I don't think it matters because if you have any sort of pride in your in your job and in any job being done well once you encounter the sort of issues that are going on at the home office like how can you not react to that and say well hang on a minute why aren't things being done properly yeah they've tried they've tried having a, a former chief inspector of police they've tried having a former like security services guy they've they've tried having a former navy guy uh, they've all ended up exactly. being really critical they're, they're not appointing ngo no, people to no. these roles and you know this is also the month i think where we heard that um, other kind of external scrutiny elements um for the home office were going to be either sort of scrapped or never never get started so the the windrush lesson learned uh, recommendation for there to be a migrants commissioner has been um, abandoned, for example, and yeah, it's just it's um, they're, they're really not keen on on external scrutiny, are they? Uh, and you know, you can see why. That perhaps leads on um, certainly on a, on a similar theme to to the next thing we we're going to cover, which was um, just quickly to say that the the High Court um, did order the Home Secretary to immediately increase asylum support rates, and that actually happened in late December, but it was just before Christmas, and we didn't actually cover it until early January. Um, and I think, Sonia, that, that was belatedly implemented, wasn't it? It didn't happen absolutely immediately. So I think um, it was the payments were made, were made a bit later, but were backdated, I think, to the date of the judgment. It was something like that um, that has happened. But, I mean, the most interesting part of this decision, which was by um, Michael Fordham, was the fact that Home Office civil servants were advising the Secretary of State that due to inflation, there was a risk that she would breach the legal duty to ensure that people were not left destitute. It set out a number of options, and I liked this bit. Um, So it set out a number of options for addressing the inflation crisis, recommended a one-off payment. As the judge pointedly observed, the advice did not consider the possibility that the Secretary of State might do nothing to address the problem. And yet that's what happened. And then further advice in September 2022 and November 2022 were also ignored by the Secretary of State. Um, so, yeah, that one, it's, I think it's worth a read just because it's quite nice for to, to see the Secretary of State being told off. Yeah, and nobody can accuse Michael Fordham of being, uh, you know, a lightweight or, or kind of uh, getting his law wrong, you know, the author of the Judicial Review Handbook and a very well-respected public lawyer. Um that also leads on to to, to sort of related um, blog post. Again, we'll just give this one a quick mention. Um, slightly um, uh, question to which the answer is yes, I think, example here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it time for the UK to change its stance on asylum seekers working? Um, yeah, so this one's interesting. It looks at what's done in some other countries and it also looks at um, obviously the cost benefit, which is where people are then able to house themselves instead of relying on the Home Office for support. One thing that always needs to be kept in mind when we're talking about uh, permission to work 
for people who are in the asylum system is in relation to legal aid. And if they do start working, there is a risk that they will push themselves over the means threshold. So just the pressure must always be kept on in relation to the legal aid agency's need to revise those uh, financial thresholds upwards as well. Um, So yeah, that's just something that as more people do uh, work, get jobs on the shortage occupation list, that's something that is starting to crop up as more and more of an issue. So it is something that's very important to bear in mind. Although obviously, um, as we'll discuss shortly, there are no legal aid lawyers anyway. So actually perhaps working will allow them to pay for private for private lawyers yeah that's a, an interesting and, and depressing point it's like yeah i my, my own line on this i, I don't think I, I just don't think the home office is ever going to give permission to work to asylum seekers on any kind of scale anyway they're so kind of institutionally convinced it's a pull factor i just don't think it's ever going to happen um but there wouldn't be as much need the same for as it. deterrence well yeah absolutely yeah exactly exactly it's kind of it's the other side of that coin in a way there's no it? evidence but they've just got it in their head yeah. that you know it's something i mean if if people really want to work here they will just do it you know under the table and cash in hand and they will be exploited that's what will happen instead yeah Yeah, absolutely um but yeah there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a need at the moment it's just the worst of all possible worlds you're not allowed to work and you're given this destitution level support and it's for ages um there wouldn't be quite the same need for them to have the right to work if the decisions were a lot quicker but of course they're they're just not they're taking a long time um, that's plan a yeah that we yes absolutely um we're going to give a quick mention before we move on to the legal aid issue about um the the cooling of operation warm welcome which is the the afghans in temporary accommodation and um it's a report that there, there's still nine thousand afghans in temporary accommodation but i think I, I don't know if you're across this better than i am but I, i've seen that um that they're simply going to be kicked out in the next in the next sort of short period of time yeah in london this month in uh, the rest of the UK by the end of the year is my understanding. So all it seems that that is going to achieve is having a lot of families presenting to their local authorities as homeless. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of issues with, you know, people who are working but are not earning enough to pay private rent in receipt of universal credit, but that's not enough. And a lot of landlords are reluctant to rent to people who are in receipt of benefits. Uh, so there are a lot of difficulties. It's really hard to see how this is the right solution i mean what on earth is going to happen to these people yeah i mean welcome to britain you sort of bunged in a hotel for a prolonged period of time and then just cut loose it's um you know it's it's, it's no surprise if there are some really bad um outcomes from from that policy uh it's pretty depressing um, okay, well, let's, this isn't uh, any any more uplifting as a subject. Um, we, we we did a, a post, um, Josie did this one actually, on um, legal aid for asylum seekers being broken. Yes. Um, so I'm not sure what prompted Josie to write this one, but I think it might have been something that I hadn't really thought about before, which was the point about the PM's commitment to clear the backlog by the end of the year. And Josie made the point that, you know, that is – so many decisions that are going to be made and the Home Office is putting all of these resources into doubling uh, decision makers. However, those people are inexperienced and they will be making decisions that are incorrect and there are no lawyers around to help with that. Last night I was out for dinner with um, someone else who's from another charity and two lawyers who work at law firms and 
the lawyers were comparing the size of their waiting lists. Now, I don't think every place is actually operating a waiting list, but one person said, children, they have over 200 people, 200 children on their waiting list to see a lawyer. I mean, it's completely unsustainable. It is completely broken. It is an absolute disaster. People are going to be put in danger as a result of this. It's just so hugely worrying. And I mean, the stress and heartache it's causing for the lawyers as well. You know, this is just taking a huge toll on everyone. And, you know, for those of us who are working in charities and we have desperate people who are frantic for a lawyer. And, you know, even to this morning I was speaking to a colleague and she was like, well, you know, migrant help are telling people that they need a lawyer. And I was like, they do need a lawyer, but there are just none to be had. Um. Yeah, so legal aid for asylum seekers yeah. is broken. Yes, yes, it is. Again, the answer is yes. Yeah. Well, I think and Josie actually started that blog post quite a long time ago because we'd, we'd heard that, uh, I don't think we'll, we'll sort of call them out by name because you know, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not critical, but we'd, we'd heard one of the major providers in the sector had stopped doing appeals work. And um, that seemed to, quite surprising <laughs> in a way yeah. because you know, they, they probably were doing a lot of appeals and that is, that is a major area of asylum um, legal aid work. And what, what you're saying about even children being stacked up in queues waiting is, is remarkable because I'm not a legal aid expert. I, I do do legal aid work, but at the barrister end of things. So I'm never that clear about how things work sort of before the, the case gets into my hands. Um, you know, children, I think I understand it. They're, they're on an hourly rate. So instead of it being a fixed fee, um, you're actually paid for the amount of work you do, admittedly at um, a low rate, but it is at least a kind of flexible fee that reflects the amount of work that goes into the case, unlike most other cases. Yeah, there are just so few lawyers who are out there. And this this is someone who is outside of London. And obviously, we know that the issue is exacerbated. So people are being dispersed throughout the country, but there aren't any lawyers yeah. there. Yeah. It's it's like a sort of boiled frog type thing. It's kind of it, it feels like it's kind of crept up on us. There's never been any obvious crisis moment. Um but it, it's reached a point where the system's really badly broken now. It just isn't working and there's about to be this big influx of appeal cases. Um because you know even if the even if the grant rate remained high you know, th- there would still be a lot more appeals coming through just because there'll be more decisions being made. And we're, we're fearing that the grant rate will fall, which would you know increase substantially um, the number of appeals coming through. And like you say, there's just nobody available to do them. So um, yes, I, I do think this is very much going to end up being the tribunal's problem. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been, um, I think um, Josie mentions it in the post, doesn't she? They've been given a, a £5 million bung for, for you know, listing more more court hearings and stuff, but uh, it's going to be a lot more, it's going to be very problematic for, for judges and for the tribunal if they, if people aren't represented. So yeah, that's all pretty, um, that's all pretty miserable and depressing really. And um, it's, it's not obvious what the solution might be either, because the kind of the, the legal, the, the refugee law sector in the UK was for various sort of historical accidental reasons, I think, was quite well developed. Um, and, you know, the, the existence of IAS and RLC has sort of provided a, a training ground for lawyers like me, for example. Um, and 
you know, since they disappeared, that hasn't really existed. And, you know, the, the kind of, there's no, there's no clear routes into the sector anymore. And, but there's lots of exit routes because if you're, you know, if you've got, if you're trained immigration law, you can make substantial amounts of money doing corporate immigration work and so on. And that is the route that a lot of people have taken. Exactly. Uh, this is, you know, something else we were discussing last night that this is going to take years to fix. And it seems that sort of once people hit around three years PQE, um, then that's when they tend to vanish. And so, you know, that's going to take a long time to to repair and get that level of experience back into the sector. And we're not even at the beginning of that process. We're not anywhere near the beginning of that process because the Civil Legal Aid Review is planning to report next year and God only knows what will happen with that report. Because we've, you know, as I think I said in a previous podcast, we've seen what happened with the criminal one, which was just ignored. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I think you might be being a bit optimistic there. I'm not sure that the sector ever will be repaired in that in that sense. I'm not sure that will ever happen. I, I think it may well just fade away, so that you've got basically some pro bono assistance, kind of a facade of of legal aid being in theory available, but not in practice, much like it is in a lot of other countries, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you might be right. It's quite rare that you're more pessimistic than I am, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's entirely possible that you are right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's move on and sort of finish off this um, this section on horrible government policies. <laughs> um, so we 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 had um, we had an interesting post about whether I thought it was interesting anyway about whether in country visa delays will have long term consequences for economic migration, and um, this was by Nicholas Reed Langan, and I think and this could be tr- you know you could pick on quite a few other policies applicable within the UK to make the same point that it's all very well wanting people to come here um, to fill skilled roles, to study as international students and so on. But um, they don't necessarily want to come if you're horrible to them once they get here. And word does get around. And you know, the, the one way to think of this is is that there's a an international, very competitive market for the top people globally, you know, there are plenty of people who think in this way, and it's you know it's accurate as well to to, to, to one way of thinking anyway. And um, countries compete to get them essentially. And and if your country has a bunch of policies that make life very difficult for people, they'll find out about that and um, they'll choose not to go. It's like um, it's like deterrence essentially, except it actually happens yeah, to, to some. It does degree. work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well done, Home Office. Yeah. You've deterred. People who are coming here for economic migration. Yeah, and um, I, the ones you claim to want. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I'm not involved in that that world to any significant degree, so I don't know whether that's actually starting to happen now. But um, one can imagine that it it might well be the case. My cousin won't apply for a visitor visa um, because she says the UK will just refuse her. So I always have to go and meet her in Europe. Yeah, which you know is no great hardship for me. But I'm always like, I can't even argue with you. It's yes, it's entirely possible you'd be wasting your time and money by applying to come here. Yeah, well, if you have to go to you know sunnier southern European climes, I wouldn't. Well, yeah, yeah quite. <laughs> Could be a blessing in disguise. That yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll, we'll finish off this bit by mentioning a, a a sort of slightly funny blog post that I. I put out. Um, I, I specifically said a modest proposal because in, you know this is not scrap at all. This isn't like tearing down the system or, or, or revolutionary in any shape or, or form. But the idea is basically, why don't we shorten some of the key immigration routes? Because one of the 
the pain points in the immigration system is the home office. And we're, we're always making suggestions about how they could be less shit, excuse my language, but, you know, just less horrible. But as an institution, you know, it, it, it's, it could certainly be better than it is, but it's always going to be a bit horrible because it's a massive government bureaucracy. So why don't we minimize the amount of contact that people have to have with it? Why don't we just get less home office in their lives, reduce the, the amount of money that people have to spend, reduce the, the period of time which, for which they've got a precarious immigration status, which has all sorts of, well, we don't think of it as precarious because we know that it's going to be renewed after two and a half years, after two and a half years, after two and a half years, but they don't feel it. Employers don't know that. Banks don't know that. It's harder to get mortgages. It's harder to get loans. It's harder to get all sorts of different things. You know, tra- employers are less willing to train you, less willing to take you on in the first place if you've got these short-term visas. So there's all sorts of indirect consequences that flow from that. And and the the idea of the blog post was, well, we'll just stop doing all that. You know, it's only since 2012 that it's taken five or 10 years to qualify as a a partner, why don't we just roll it back again? You know, have it as two or five years or, or sort of one or three years or, or, or something like that. Um, and that would make a really big difference to really quite a lot of people. And it's not particularly controversial. I mean, you know, you're singing one of my favorite songs. The 10 year route is an absolute nonsense. It's a waste of people's time. Um, you know, you were talking about, um, the instability of just not being settled, but also as was covered in the previous article as well, the period of time spent on 3C leave is hugely problematic and that makes life extremely difficult for people. Um, And, you know, having to do these repeat applications, you will be spending a lot of time with 3C leave. Um, So, yeah, it's just, it's common sense. It's so extraordinarily sensible. There is no way it will ever happen, not under the current government anyway. Yeah, well, we, I suppose we could hope, but you know, we, we're. I'm trying to. Th- I think it might be a sort of good time for people to be trying to put proposals out there into the public space. Um, Absolutely, I, I, yeah. I don't think um, the Labour Party is likely to sort of publicly commit to very much. Quite frankly, they're they're sort of terrified of the issue of immigration and kind of understandably so, I think. But um, nevertheless, you know, if, if we can sort of feed some of these ideas into people, then um, hopefully give them something to yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, this is the easiest of wins. It, it will free up so much resource in the home office as well. I mean, it's just so extremely logical. Yeah, that's kind of how I was trying to pitch it. I was kind of trying to put it, this is for the home office's own good. Um, and I, Well, you convinced me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I convinced them. It, it, it does feel like that sometimes though. Like the home office actually needs saving from itself. They do stuff that yeah. really doesn't help them actually in the long run. Um, and this is, this yeah. is one example perhaps. Right, let's move on to a segment on nationality then. So it's not often that we've got several posts about nationality in a given month, but we do actually this <laughs> month. Um, I'm going to start very quickly by outlining um, one that was contributed by um, Alexander Finch. And this is about, uh, it, you know, the blog post is going to be pretty obscure to anybody who's not in the know. So revised guidance on Section 4L, British Nationality Act 1981, the Remain Principle. What the hell is Section 4L? What the hell is the Remain Principle? Well, Section 4L is um, the good bit, basically, of the the Borders and Nationality Act um, 2022. It allows the Home Office... it allows the Home Office to register as British certain people who have been excluded from British nationality through unfairness in historic laws. And it's a kind of catch-all provision. So it refers to unfairness and it doesn't have clear statutory criteria. And the idea of that is that it gives the Home Office more flexibility than they've had previously. 
And uh, apparently the, the caseworker guidance for Section 4L has been updated. Um, the examples have got a bit more meat on them, some of them. And this seems to be an example of something that the Home Office is actually pretty serious about, where they are actually trying to encourage people to make applications and, and put right some, some historic wrongs. And we're not talking about, I guess, very substantial numbers of people here, which perhaps explains why the Home Office is, is, is willing to take it seriously. Um, but obviously, it does help those who, who are affected by it. And the, the specific example that Alexander um, has picked out is the Remain principle, which was to do with registration as a British citizen that people have missed out on because um, their parents, I think it's their parents, weren't registered at a, a consulate or an embassy um, at the time of their birth or within a year of their birth, which theoretically could have happened, but there was basically no reason to do it at the time. And that the, that's all, there's a statutory bar that operates that, that prevents them um, normally from, from getting um, British citizenship. There's a case in the Supreme Court could remain where unusually the... Um, the Supreme Court, instead of applying conventional principles of statutory interpretation, essentially just said, screw it, we're going to ignore that, and just just ignored the statutory requirements of British nationality law. It's remarkable, really, and didn't attract a lot of comments at the time, but still remarkable. And apparently the Home Office is now quite keen to extend uh, the Remain principle to those with a UK-born grandmother as well. So it, it, it's not you won't find that explicitly on the face of the British Nationality Act itself, but it's in the guidance and they, the Home Office is apparently willing to register people under 4L in those circumstances. So it probably doesn't affect a lot of people, but it's important for those it does affect. Right, Sonia, over to you. You're going to cover um, another nationality thing before it comes back to me, I think. Um, yes, yeah, so mine is the reasonably foreseeable consequences of depriving someone of British citizenship. The case is Muslia deprivation, reasonably foreseeable consequences. Um, and it was in the upper tribunal. Essentially, it just says uh, where a decision is made depriving someone of their British citizenship, it doesn't necessarily lead to removal. And there is a two-stage process. Um, if, first of all, the person is deprived of their British citizenship, they will then become subject to immigration control. And then the second part is that the Home Office will then decide whether or not to grant them leave, for example, on human rights grounds. And if they refuse leave, then there's a separate right of appeal. So at the first stage, i.e. the deprivation stage, only the reasonable foreseeable consequences of deprivation will be considered. And that is not looking at removal, but actually what will happen during the limbo period between deprivation and the decision on leave. So in this case, it was things like the delay, the loss of the right to work, the impact on the person's child. So what will not be considered at that deprivation appeal is the potential outcome of the second stage, which is looking at likelihood of removal. Right. Thank you. And now on to RORIG, which I've been kind of dreading talking about. Um, but it, it's, it's a high court decision that was handed down this month, which has implications that are so big, it's a bit difficult to get one's head around. And it's, um, it's an issue that I think nationality lawyers have known about for quite a long time now. Uh, you know, it's covered in Franzman's, the kind of nationality law Bible. It actually came up in a previous upper tribunal decision back in 2017, 2018, that Miss Justice McCloskey decided that everything was wrong, but it, it did still highlight the issue. And it's to do with what happened on the 2nd of October 2000, basically, when the Home Office changed its mind about 
um, how British nationality law works. And until then, the Home Office thought that if you were a European national, European citizen, and you were in the UK under the auspices of European law, exercising your free movement rights, so you're a worker or a student or, or, or whatever, then you had no time limit on your stay. You were therefore settled for the purposes of British nationality law, which meant that your children were automatically born British and could therefore simply apply for a passport at any time during their lives. And then on the 2nd of October 2000, they changed their mind, or probably they changed their mind before that, but they, they put it into effect on the 2nd of October 2000. And they decided that that had been wrong, or, or at least that it was now that they would apply a different approach. They didn't say that it, they were wrong. They just decided to apply a different approach. And they said that actually you needed to have ILR if you were a European citizen. Um, after 2006, um, it became clear that you, know, you could get permanent residence automatically. And therefore, after five years of residence, you'd be settled and your, 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 your children would qualify and they'd be born British, even if you didn't know it, even if they didn't know it, but they could just apply for a passport at any time for the rest of their life. But until that happened in 2006, um, you know, there's this question about was the Home Office able to simply change its mind about how British nationality law worked? Or was it wrong for one of those periods and therefore actually wrong for for the whole period or right for the whole period? So you know, did it turn out that the people um, who were recognised as British born before the 2nd of October 2000 actually shouldn't have been and therefore weren't? And that you know, we could talk about this perhaps a bit, but actually if you've been wrongly recognised as a citizen, if the law did not confer citizenship on you and the Home Office made a mistake, then your citizenship is nullified. It, it would never, you were never a citizen, in fact, and your passport is revoked and or not renewed when you you, you send it in for renewal and so on. Um, or were they right all along? After sorry, were they right after the second of October? Um, sorry, before the second of October. I get myself confused again here. Were they right before the second of October? And actually, all the people who were born after then, um, including up to the present day. Um, actually, you know, almost up present day, up, up until Brexit happened, um, 31st of January 2020, I think it would be, wouldn't it, Sonia, the cutoff? Is that right? I think so, yeah. yeah. It, it it's was, so recent. It's, it, feels like, it feels like ancient history Brexit at this well, point in time. Yeah, we had a whole what, pandemic since. Yeah, I, the, the actual dates elude me now. So uh, all, all the way through from, from 2nd of October 2000, right until the moment of Brexit, if the Home Office had been right before the 2nd of October 2000, then it meant that as soon as you were exercising your treaty rights in the UK, then your children were automatically born British. You didn't need ILR and you didn't need permanent residence. And that's huge as well. So uh, it's, it's a really big case. And the judge decided that the Home Office was wrong before the 2nd of October 2000. And therefore, the people who've been recognised as British before that date, it logically follows, are not actually British. And I don't know what happens. Yeah, I was... Um telling someone about this case yesterday and I sort of had to say it like five times because I was like no no it is as insane as you think it is because they were like oh no it was fine you know she was exercising treaty rights you know etc etc because this was again someone was born I think around 2000 and it was like no no you need to look because potentially that person is not British um, so, you know, that's what week one, and I've already found one. I saw that Kingsley Napoli article where they said potentially hundreds of thousands of people. I'm really concerned about the lack of mainstream media coverage of this. Um, and I'd like to see some MPs following up with some questions about what is the Home Office going to do? I mean, 
do they plan on fixing it? Why were they fighting this to begin with? You know, like what, what is, what's, what's going to happen next? Yeah. They need to figure out what they're going to do and pretty quickly. Yeah. Especially when you put it in the context of rolling out all of these hostile environment measures again. And, you know, are people going to need to apply under EUSS, but out of time, that's, you know, again, how much work does the Home Office want to create for itself here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I don't know. I'm not. I'm not so. I, I wouldn't be critical of the you know the MSM, the mainstream media, uh, particularly because this is. I think this is a pretty hard story to write up. Oh, it is no, niche. Yeah, yeah. And if, as soon as somebody actually has their passport revoked or something like that, then you've got a media story because that's just how the media works. Um, but absolutely, MPs should be honoured onto this. Yeah, this is a really serious legal issue. Really serious legal issue. And it's it is going to blow up. Like, absolutely. If the Home Office is going to start taking people's passports from them, which seems to, you know, I, it, the judgment says that they've been pausing decisions. Like, just what, what is the plan? Yeah, This is what yeah. blows my mind. So I, I, I think there are two ways forward for the Home Office here. One of them I'm pretty sceptical of. So this has kind of happened before at much smaller scale. So where citizen, you know, you, you probably followed, there used to be a lot of citizenship nullifications. And eventually, the Supreme Court said that the Home Office shouldn't be doing it in so many cases. Um, and they kind of stopped and started to use the, the formal deprivation procedure instead, where there's a, a right of appeal and so on. But there have been nullifications over the years. And suddenly, there was a spike, which there shouldn't have been. But there have been those cases. And what happens? Um, what happens to the children? So if, if you're, for example, the father, you have your citizenship nullified, your children have got citizenship because you were a citizen in the UK when they were born, what happens to their citizenship? And the Home Office has previously just not left it alone, basically, and said, right, well, we've decided to treat their applications for a passport as an application under Section 3 of the British Nationality Act and administratively grant um, citizenship to these children, as we've got a power to do. And the, the Home Office does have this weird power, the Secretary of State has this weird power to grant citizenship to any child anywhere in the world. But that's never happened at scale like this. And we don't know how many people are affected. Um, and also, it, can't, it can only happen in respect of children. Um, exactly, because so the parents I, not, will still need status as well. Yeah, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know what happens if they're, if they're no longer children. So that's that's one possible solution, a kind of like fudge fix where you kind of administratively grant citizenship instead of automatically. But I'm I'm not convinced that that's legally robust. Um, and then the other possibility is you legislate. You know, you you just have to define the class in law and retro retrospectively grant them citizenship, basically. Um, I, I don't see how you can ignore it. Although I haven't seen anything from the Home Office yet either. And it's, you know, it's been a couple of weeks at least. That's what I mean, the and they fought the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's it's sort of pretty mind-boggling. I, in terms of the numbers affected, I, it's really hard to estimate because it might be not that many people conceivably. So yeah, if you go back to the year 2000, there simply weren't as many EU citizens coming to the UK and then the only children that this affects are where the only claim to citizenship was through the EU parent. So if the other parent was either British um, or was a foreign national or an EU national who had formal ILR status, then the child's British anyway, they're fine. So it's only in cases where the other parent was not settled in the UK um, that the children are affected here. But it could still be... I, 
I would have thought we'd be talking about tens of thousands because it's from the 1st of January, 1983, through to the 2nd of October, 2000, that we're talking about here from the commencement of the the British Nationality Act, 1981, and the scrapping of birthright citizenship back then. Um, and it, and it's, you know, it, it's kids born since then that are affected by this. Sonia, have you got any last last thoughts, last words on this one? So yeah, I mean, I think it's likely to affect a lot of a lot of couples will have moved here from the EU together, and it's very unlikely that one of them will have applied for ILR, for example, and the other one wouldn't have. So I think it is likely that there are going to be a lot of families that are affected by yeah. this. Yeah. Well, once we once we do hear something, we'll let people know. If if we hear something, I goodness goodness knows what the Home Office is going to do. Um, okay, so let's move on to a, a succession of um, fairly technical but also rather important for practice um, points. So I was going to start this section, and I'm just going to give a quick mention to a, I think, a useful blog post by um, Alex Paletzka on upgrading a visa application you've already made. Uh, I'm, I'm really just kind of flagging that up because um, this is not, should we say, my area of expertise as, as a barrister. I don't know useful stuff like this, um, but it's basically about essentially making a, a variation application and in the process upgrading it to a, a priority application. So just flagging up for other lawyers that that is a thing that you can do. It works. And if you're interested, then have a look at Alex's post on the 4th of January about that. Right, Sonia, over to you. The next one I'm going to look at is permission needs to be properly sought for video link evidence from abroad. This was a case, uh, it's Raza and Secretary of State for the Home Department in the Court of Appeal. Mr. Raza was arguing that his uh, tribunal hearing was unlawful because while the authorities in Pakistan had been notified and had not objected, they had also not positively agreed to it. However, the court was shown various documents which confirmed there was no legal barrier, that the Pakistan High Commission had been notified, no objections had been raised. So essentially, where there is evidence presented before the court that there is a real risk of contravening a foreign country's law by giving evidence by video link, then the court may take a different view or impose conditions on the permission to give evidence from abroad. But in this case, Mr. Raza was unsuccessful. Yeah, my my reading of this one, and I'm, I think I've got this right, but I'm not completely sure, is that basically the tribunal shouldn't have gone ahead in this case because they did not have proper permission um, for the evidence to be heard from abroad. And the big takeaway from the case seems to be that actually it's quite a big deal um, to hear evidence from abroad and you really do need to get permission lined up. Um, but um, he was unsuccessful in saying that anything unlawful had happened. So the home Office, the, the, the tribunal shouldn't have heard the evidence, but um, it wasn't unlawful for the purpose of the appeal and, and therefore his, his, his particular case failed. Right, moving on to the next item. Um, this is case disposed of in error after Secretary of State fails to comply with court directions. Uh, so, yep, another one of my favourite topics is the complete disinterest demonstrated by uh, the Home Office in complying with tribunal directions during appeals. In this one, the Secretary of State missed four deadlines to submit evidence before the hearing, uh, was then required to attend a case management hearing to explain failure to comply failed to send a representative. Uh, the judge set, set a new and final deadline, stated that missing this deadline would result in an assumption that the Secretary of State did not oppose the appeal. You'll be shocked to hear the deadline was missed. And so the judge uh, subsequently decided in favour of the appellant. At this point in time, 
Home Office decided that they would take an interest in the appeal and so they went to um, the upper tribunal. So the upper tribunal um, allowed the appeal, remitted the case to the first tier tribunal. I think the most important point in there is that you need to look at the rules about when an appeal can be disposed of without a hearing. Um, There are uh, essentially the FTT must hold a hearing except where certain exceptions apply. The I think the most important one probably, particularly in relation to asylum, um, is a hearing should be held whenever credibility is disputed on any material issue or fact. So that's going to apply to a lot of appeals actually. So that is just something to bear in mind. And so in almost all cases, the appropriate course of action would be to list the case for a hearing and decide the case on such material as is before the tribunal whether or not the Home Office is there, but the hearing still needs to take place. Yeah. Judges, bless them. Um, d- d- uh, as frustrating as all this stuff is, it happens. You know, this stuff does happen. Shouldn't let your judge do this. If you if you have a if you have the chance to stop them, you sh- you should do so. But um, judges aren't always easy to stop. <laughs> um, the next one is is Chikwamba still relevant? This is another yes answer. Um, but essentially, it's only relevant when the only reason for refusal is that the applicant must leave and apply for entry clearance and even then full analysis of article 8 claim is still necessary um so yes but you know in limited cases and in the appeals um that this article was based on that was not the situation and so chikwamba was deemed irrelevant in those cases yeah, I've I've got an appeal on a sort of chiquamba like point coming up where I'm not sure this is an entirely helpful case that I'll I'll be having to the uh, bring the judge's attention. Um I was going to cover an item, it's it's just a short one, this, uh, on the durable partner rules. Um dumbfounding, as as we put it in the headline, the the upper tribunal. This one's by Chris Ben over at Seraphis Solicitors. And um uh, Judge Canavan, uh, an, an old colleague from Refugee Legal Center, um struggled to discern what the meaning was of durable partner in the absolute you know alphabet spaghetti car crash pick your metaphor that is appendix eu and you know, one of the things that that drives me nuts is that the withdrawal agreement between the uk and the eu was you know, specifically provided for processes being simple and straightforward and yet we've ended up with this absolutely appalling bit of drafting in Appendix EU. Um, and um, yeah, essentially, if you can't understand it, then you're you're in good company. Um, even very experienced, quite senior judges in the upper tribunal can't make head nor tail of it. So uh, just hearing the phrase Appendix EU triggers a stress response in me. I can feel my heart beating faster. Um, okay, I think we're on to the last one now. Yep. And that is identifying litigation friends for vulnerable migrants. This, I just love all of the work that Migrants Organize and Brian have been doing around this. I think it's an example of really effective working towards real policy change. Um, So this is in relation to people who don't have capacity, who need representation in the tribunal. And the most recent development, which is covered in this article, is in relation to the official solicitor. So when someone doesn't have anyone else who can act as a litigation friend, then the official solicitor can act as litigation friend of last resort. Um, They were... routinely refusing to act in the tribunal system, including the immigration tribunal, even when their official criteria were satisfied. Um, And so in August last year, 
migrants organised decided to bring a legal challenge against the Ministry of Justice for their ongoing failure to provide a system of litigation for end of last resort in the immigration tribunals. Um, They sent a pre-action letter to the Ministry of Justice and they replied and said uh, via a letter on the 13th of October last year that the official solicitor will act in the immigration tribunal provided that all of their standard criteria apply. I do love sending pre-action letters to the Ministry of Justice because you quite you know it's it's not unheard of to get a sensible response um, and then there is a little court action at the end of the article um, migrants organize are currently in correspondence with the IAC's president's chambers to ask them to adopt a clear practice direction on the use of litigation friends to assist practitioners they ask that anyone who is encountering any issue with the process of getting a litigation friend appointed to please contact Brian yeah it's it's a really it as you absolutely say it's a really good piece of work they've done it's a really useful blog post for highlighting the issue and um Brian Brian's been brilliant um, yeah so his email address there is in the post and he's also um, quite active on Twitter and um, uh, quite um, quite restrained, I think, considering what he has to put up with and the, the sort of level of opposition that he um, he meets in day to day work. So, um, yeah, that, that's a, it's a it's a good, I think, upbeat, um, positive blog post actually to, hey, to end on. Yeah, yay. we we yeah we did one. <laughs> we did one. We did one. Okay, so that wraps things up for January 2023. We hope that's been helpful, and we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.